Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So you have a theory. I have a theory. We occasionally do shows about a particular year, and the one I looked at recently was 1973, which is really remarkable. And I want to give you a couple of examples of the sort of thing that I think is, is remarkable, and that is the schism that is apparently happening. Now, let's look at the beginning of 1973, and the Super Bowl is on. Super Bowl seven. It's Believe it or not, there were Super Bowls that had single-digit numbers. <laughs> I don't know who played in the game offhand, but the halftime show was performed by Woody Herman and the Michigan State University Marching Band with Andy Williams. Wow. Now, Andy Williams, I'm sure a lot of people know, kind of four sides, four angles, you know, kind of a square guy. <laughs> you know the Christmas shows. Andy Williams had a big year that year because he hosted the Grammy Awards. And the Grammy Awards that year, um, it was a big year for Roberta Flack. The Best New Artist at the 1973 Grammy Awards went to America. Recently on Twitter, someone said, what's the worst song that has ever been recorded? And somebody answered, I don't know, but it's the one that goes, manum, 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 a horse with no name. Okay. So that's the sort of disdain that people have for America nowadays. Now. The top three songs for 1973 were Tie a Yellow Ribbon, Round That Old Oak Tree, which is a sort of an anti-war song, but palatable. You know, it's a, it's, the song was about how do you welcome the troops home, right? So it was, it was somewhat a, an optimistic song about hopefully the troops will be home soon. This is 1973. They didn't come home until 75. Um, Jim Croce was in there, and I think that Roberta Flack song I mentioned. Meanwhile, off the top of my head, I happen to know that three of my favorite albums were released that year. David Bowie's Aladdin Sane, Steely Dan's Countdown to Ecstasy, and Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, which went to number one in April, the same month the Grammys were held, and stayed there for years. Now there's for this- decades. Decades. Now there's this schism going on in the media. There's people who like the Roberta Flack, Jim Croce, you know, you know how close they got to a rock and roll performance on the Grammys? Loggins and Messina doing Your Mama Don't Dance and Your Daddy Don't Rock and Roll. That's as close as they got. Anything else? Um, uh, Helen Reddy was there doing I Am Woman. Andy Williams did five songs. He's the host of the show, not even nominated for anything. There's this strange schism. There's this 60s hangover for adults. And yet somewhere down below, there's this underground it wasn't even underground i mean pink floyd they're not underground yes we talked about this a few weeks ago and i've been looking into um what's been released what's sold well and you know we talked previously about 1977 and 1981 and i kind of think if we look at every year in the 70s we're going to find these monolithic milestone albums might be so yes uh, and oh, I think, well, of course, it is. Yes. Well, we'll have to go through the entire decade slowly. <laughs> but if you look at Dark Side of the Moon, Aladdin Sane, Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions, The Stooges' Raw Power didn't mark a lot, but it was, you know, an important thing because this is early proto punk. King Crimson, Locks, Tongue, and Aspic, 
Genesis selling England by the pound, quite popular. Some group had a first album named Black Sabbath. I think that was their first record. I think Queen's first record was the one called Queen. Kiss did their first performances in 1973. Now that's definitely anti-cultural, if not counter-cultural. Kiss was from Queens, which is where I grew yes, up. I didn't right. know them, that's but right. they were from Queens. Let me just go a little bit further, and I'm looking at a list of what is critically acclaimed. Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, probably the defining Elton John album. Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On. That was one of those soul records that crossed over into the broader music arena. That's about the time of Shaft, too, isn't it? Yeah, there, there was a lot of, well, like I said, there was this, the counterculture was bleeding into Squaresville. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we didn't have, well, we could talk about it, but, I mean, everybody heard the same thing. So you either kind of liked something or you didn't like something. Or... Well, FM radio was starting to spread around then, right? Correct. So you were getting the difference between AM and FM. You were getting the album rock on FM radio. Right. But everyone was hearing Paul McCartney's band on the run. Mm -hmm. Hugely popular. Lou Reed's Berlin. Maybe not his best album overall, but the best concept album. I don't think he would call it a concept album, but it really was. Um. These all of these things are are bubbling beneath the surface, and yet we never saw these bands on television. You never saw a video of them. Mm. The only way you heard about them was from the radio, or from your friends, or from reading about them. But I remember, and I was thinking about this too because I mentioned Kiss, and I'm not a Kiss fan necessarily. I mean, I, I had a couple of their records, but you know what the heck. Um, the you only saw pictures of them. You never saw them on television. You never saw them moving and doing their craziness. I think I saw them live before they actually saw them on television. So it was a very strange time. It was a very strange time for media, I think, because there was no splintering. There was, everybody got a big pipe. Um, I believe I read that the live rock TV shows were starting around then. Don Kirshner's rock concert, I think, began syndication in 73. But there had always been, there had already been uh, NBC's Midnight Special, which was on, what, Friday night, Saturday nights at midnight or something. And then ABC had a show called In Concert. These were 90-minute long music shows where they actually went on location and, and, and videotaped uh, performances. But these shows didn't run in prime time. They ran on the weekends overnight or late night anyway. And so there's this, there's this realization that there is a youth culture that's, that's worthy of obtaining somewhere. You know, they're trying to capture them overnights on the weekends. But you don't hear them on the radio. You don't hear them on traditional radio, and you don't see any of this music on television. We did hear them on FM radio, though. Yes, we did. WNEW FM in sure, New York sure. would play a side of Dark Side of the Moon. It would play a side of Brain Salad Surgery, another record that came out, ELP's really groundbreaking record. I, I want to just keep going on because some of the – when you add up all of these records, this is like enough music to keep you for a lifetime almost. Tom Waits Closing Time, I don't know if it was his first album, but this was probably his breakthrough album. The Who, Quadrophenia, talk about a, a milestone, maybe not as successful as an album as some of their other albums, and because of, you know, their broader idea of the rock opera and all that. Roxy Music's second album, For Your Pleasure, which was really good. And here's one that not only was a record, but it was also a movie soundtrack. Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. What was the most popular movie of 1973? Had to be The Exorcist then, right? Exactly. 
73 was an interesting year for movies because The Exorcist was the highest grossing, followed by The Sting, and here we go, nostalgic American graffiti. You know what? See, you're starting to see it there, too. It's like you got the square movie, and then you've got this sort of countercultural thing going on. So for square movies, you've got The Way We Were in Paper Moon, you know, mellow rom-coms. For countercultural, Last Tango in Paris, and The Devil in Miss Jones which was actually the 10th highest grossing film of the year. Yeah, a lot of people said they didn't go see that, but they did. No, they did. More albums, because this is fascinating. Bob Marley and the Whalers Catch a Fire, the first Leonard Skinner album. That seems, you know, uh, Leonard Skinner, now that's, that's strange to think. I think of them as a, a little more modern. Maybe they came to the, the surface maybe later, because I remember listening to them years later, well, several years later, three or four years later, but not that early. Well, they came out swinging because Freebird was on that album. That's one of the most recognizable songs of, of weddings in, <laughs> in the entire world now, isn't it? Well, I don't, know if, I don't know if people still play it, but, you know. What was the movie I saw? There was a movie by Cameron Crowe with Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst. It was a sort of a rom-com-y thing. And so they end up at this wedding and they were playing Freebird at the wedding. That's just nuts. Yeah, I know. But one artist had a debut album and a second album, both this year. In January, Greetings from Asbury Park, and in September, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Now, okay, there you go. Now, that's, to me, that suggests that their new stuff is coming. <laughs> you know, this, this change in attitude, uh, we're going to settle down, and we're going to have a rock culture now. Of course, we can look back and, and, and say that. At the time, when those Bruce Springsteen albums came out, I don't think many people cared about them. Not really. I don't think that anyone cared until 75 with Born to Run, which is going to be one of our album episodes in the future because it is a, a hugely important album. I, I really liked the first album where he was trying to be like a new Dylan with the weird lyrics and all that. I liked the sound and the tone. And then obviously the Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Trouble that changed everything. Rosalita was such a popular song. You heard that everywhere. The Rolling Stones had a record in 73. Oh, no. What was it? Goat's Head Soup. Oh, I hate that record. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And I'll tell you why I hate it. And this is part of the schism. I'll go in reverse. The, it, in my opinion, that record, I think I mentioned this whenever we talk about the Stones, that record is the beginning of where they started doing formula music. There's really, it's very studio sounding. I was so yeah. disappointed when I heard that record. It just sounds like they were in a studio. It's so dead and cardboardy. I mean, there are some good songs on it, and there, they had a couple of hits on it, but it, to me, it is just, I, that's where I started to abandon the Rolling Stones. So here's another band that had two records in 73, and that really shows the apex and the slide downward. Yes had Yes songs, and then Tales from Topographic Oceans. Well, that's it. So Yes songs was like the culmination of Yes's career, and then... The sort of self-absorbed twenty-minute songs, and and which was a huge—I think it sold a million copies in a week, or even on pre-orders. It was hugely popular because of Yes's popularity, but you know that's that's the downward cycle. There, it was really quick. As I said earlier, Brain Salad Surgery, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's breakthrough album. That's interesting because they kind of, well, I mean, if we suggest that Yes was kind of going away, sort of suggest that ELP is picking up the gauntlet and running with it or something. but They were doing well for a few years, and they, it was around 77 that ELP kind of faded away. 
but they had, I mean, a huge radio play for Carnival Number no. 9 Part 2, which was very interesting. You know, that long track, they split it up. They could have put it all on one side, but they started it in the middle of the first side, and then the end comes in the beginning of the second side, maybe to make a single out of it. Possibly. What album is Lucky Man on? That's not on that album, is it? No, it's from their first album. So how many um, years is that? Like 1970. Two... It wasn't that long. Oh, wow. Three years, though. That's Yeah. No, they went from the first album, then Tarkus, Pictures at an Exhibition, Trilogy, then Brain Salad Surgery. And then, of course, after that, they took a hiatus for a few years and then kind of, you know. I didn't know Lucky Man was that old. That's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that that's kind of like the two sides of ELP because there were several, there was the Christmas song that Greg Lake wrote and sang as well. Uh, you know, that kind of folky type stuff that ELP did. We used to play, we, that's the only song we ever played on the radios to suggest to people that, yes, we play ELP. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's one which to me is a foundational record. Frippinino, No Pussyfooting. Yeah, that was an odd album too. That uh, that launched a lot of uh, indie, in, I guess you'd call it indie now, but sort of inspirational uh, to a lot of a lot of people. Another one of the most popular records of the decade. It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. The regular crowd shuffles in. Piano boy. Piano man. I know what it is. God, <laughs> do I know what it is? Do if I know any, I could sing you that song right now. Yeah. It is amazing how popular that was. Huge. And, Merv and Griffin, that was... I, heard, I think I've told you this before. I was watching the Merv Griffin show one time, and Merv Griffin comes on and says, there's a terrific new song by a great new songwriter. I'm going to do it for you right now. And he sang Piano Man, as square as it could be. And that was the old guard, the Torch songs, that he was recreating. I saw Billy Joel, 76, 77, in a place called the Calderon Concert Hall on Long Island, small 1,500, 2,000 seats. He hadn't yet hit the arenas, even after three or four records. It was surprising, given the popularity. New Yorkers. That's their problem. He was a New Yorker. <laughs> he was a Long Island. Yeah, there, right. Think, He's even he? worse than yeah. a New Yorker, lower on the evolutionary scale. So Bob Dylan had that self-titled album, Dylan, which was a bit of a, a dud. But one of his greatest songs came out that year, Knocking on Heaven's Door, on the soundtrack of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. You know, you, you know, if I may pause and just parenthetically say, you're not kidding about every year being jam-packed with interesting little things. And then, uh, and then compared to now, it seems to me, now, may, now maybe I'm just not paying attention. We're not paying attention, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't. The, the monolithic aspect of a lot of these bands and a lot of these releases is just so different than it is now. I mean, yeah, we have monolithic releases and we have huge, terrific, you know, music being made. But these things are so formative and so, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, they point so much to what was to come. Right. Right. So I'm going to go through another list here of, I think these are the best-selling albums, and to us and some others didn't show up on the first list. New York Dolls. Are you kidding? Their first album. Oh my yeah. goodness! I I don't think of that stuff as being like pre seventy five or seventy six. Yeah, I don't Same either. Same with Diggy Pop. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing. There's this blurry sort of. Did that music really come out that long ago? It seems yeah. so more modern. Yeah. In retrospect. Yeah, there goes Ryman Simon by Paul Simon, hugely popular. 
Another Brian Eno, Here Come the Warm Jets. Oh, now, that was his first record. solo song albums. Yeah. We're going to talk about four of his albums at some point because for me, that is just, that is timeless music when you think about it. I don't think he constructed it to be that way, but it turns out that it actually is. It, and again, it's a blueprint sort of sounding record. And think about Eno with three records there with Here Come the Warm Jets, with No Pussyfooting with Robert Fripp, and the second Roxy Music album. So he was everywhere at the time. John Cale's Paris 1919, I'm not sure if that was his first solo album, but it might have been. Because The Velvet Underground did release an album called Squeeze, but that was without Cale or, or Reed, so that might have been his first. Little Feet Dixie Chicken, that doesn't seem like a 73 album either. No, it doesn't. In fact, I really got to know that record many, year, uh, many years later, again, like in 1980 or something, when a lot of my friends had it, but I ne had never listened to it. So it it didn't seem like it was that. Jeez, it doesn't seem like it was came out in '73. It just doesn't. Jackson Brown for Everyman. Wow, hugely popular. That was a big deal. That might have been the one that made him into you know who he became. Yeah, the singer part, the songwriter stuff he'd already been doing, but the singer that's right. Uh, he'd been writing songs for other people. Yeah, the Eagles' Desperado. Now, we talked about this recently because they didn't originally record Desperado. Linda Ronstadt did, and it became hugely popular. So they not only recorded it, but named an album after it. And this was the one with them on the back dressed up like cowboys in a, in a ghost town and stuff. But, you know, and, and this was kind of them being, well, we're about to become really big. In fact, they probably were becoming really big then. And then, of course, it culminated in 77 with Hotel California. They... um. The, 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 as I recall, they they were desperate to become popular. They wanted that's what they wanted to do. They wanted yeah. to make million selling records, and that's that was their intention. So dressing up as cowboys was just part of the act. I think Aerosmith's first album was called Aerosmith. That came out in '73. I would have said that came out earlier. That's weird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. '73. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because you have that. You have Queen. You have a couple other bands like that that had um, their first. Albums named after them, like, well, Leonard Skinner, it was called what it, it it's pronounced Leonard Skinner pronounced or whatever. Leonard Skinner. Yeah. Jethro Tull's A Passion Play. Now, that's interesting because that's a bit of a concept album. It wasn't as popular as Aqualung, which I think was 71 or 72, but I think it was still popular. I don't know. I, I don't what I don't remember any of the songs that are on it, and it might have gotten some FM radio play, but it, it's, it's not a highlight from that span of of records another eponymous album the marshall tucker band wow really i thought they yeah. might have been a little earlier too but again they, <clears throat> they you're starting to see the influence of what the allman brothers brought to the table right it's like hey they did it and so you start to see these jazz rock fusion folk fusion countries southern whatever you want to southern rock i don't i don't like the expression southern rock because yeah I, I, I confederacy well, or but something but all, it's like, all but one member of the band came from canada and they were said to play southern rock <laughs> right. <laughs> right, um, exactly. the allman brothers released brothers and sisters with ramblin man which was probably their biggest song ever and and their least allman brothers sounding song i mean yeah. there's no jazz there's no nothing it is it's, it's the most boring song ever i mean i think it's the same chords over and over again isn't even the cor the verse and the chorus are the same yeah. pretty bland stuff now i don't I don't know Van Morrison's catalog well enough. Was Hard Nose the Highway a big deal? I don't, it doesn't, I wouldn't even knew, known he had an album called There you that. go. 
Okay. Daryl Hall and John Oates abandoned Luncheonette? Oh, that's probably their breakthrough record. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of tunes on there that um, we still hear today. I think uh, She's Gone is on there, maybe. Joe Walsh, The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get. Ah, uh, yeah. So that's not long before he joined the Eagles, I think. Yeah, he was... Um, he had a nice solo career going with those albums and Rocky Mountain Way on there and whatever else. He had put out a couple of albums that were crazy, had crazy titles like that. And it was he was a popular guy in, uh, on FM radio. I definitely remember hearing him on the radio. He did the longer songs, you know, famous for doing the wah and the voice box and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, he was a popular guy. He had come from the James Gang and uh, managed to, you know, stay above the fray with his solo stuff. And was able to get a job with the Eagles. So you mentioned the Super Bowl. And on the same day as the Super Bowl, Elvis Presley was on TV live from Honolulu, Hawaii, beamed by satellite to over 40 countries, but not the U.S. because of the Super Bowl. See, some things are more important than Elvis. <laughs> yeah, they delayed it, 73 right? Elvis was not the best Elvis. They delayed the uh, release of the, the live performance, I think, or something, didn't they? Or I don't remember. But I mean, look at that. Uh, worldwide... Uh, satellite telecast of the squarest rock and roll guy in the universe. <laughs> and, you know, it was hugely popular. I mean, the the record is that they made from it and the TV show is still uh, highly regarded if you're an Elvis fan. Yeah. So here's just, just a few songs that came out because we're talking about albums, but sometimes the songs are the things that remain, even if the albums don't. Carly Simon, You're So Vain. Oh, my. This is like the soundtrack for... Like, I don't know, every rom-com in the 70s would play that song, right? <laughs> Stevie Wonder, Superstition. Wow. Elton John, Crocodile Rock. Yeah, big. That was a that was a huge hit. Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly with his song. I think she won the Grammy for that. Yeah. Edgar Winter, Frankenstein. Really? Now, I don't know anything about the Edgar Winter group, but I that is the song that everyone heard, right? Right. But it's sort of a it's sort of a novelty song. Uh, you know, because it's an instrumental and it's it's palatably heavy, I guess. Sounds good on the radio. Sounds really good on the radio. The, the, the editing, the production of it is really nice. So here's another name that I do not place in 1973. I think of this person in 75, 76-ish. Susie Quattro. Oh, my, yeah. Wow, 73. She was early. I wouldn't recognize her music, but kind of like Iggy Pop and some of the other proto-punk people that were coming, she was from Detroit, that were coming from the Midwest, there was, you know... Yeah, you're right. Th there was a sound coming there. Kodachrome by Paul Simon. Yeah, big AM hit, top top 10, yep. for sure. A couple of concerts worth noting. Led Zeppelin played a stadium concert with 56,800 people. Some of the songs were used in the film The Song Remains the Same, which came out in 77. You know, uh, speaking of concerts, are you going to mention the concert for Bangladesh? Oh, I didn't think about that. I was going to mention Watkins Glen, though. Oh, Watkins Glen, yeah. true, but let me just say the Concert for Bangladesh won the Album of the Year or something at the Grammys, which is kind of strange. It's it's this, I mean, it kind of goes against the grain, but I think the Academy or whatever it is said, "Oh, we're helping, uh, we're helping Bangladeshis. Let's uh, let's give an award yeah. and feel good about ourselves." Okay, in spite of the fact that you don't like Goat's Head Soup, they did have one of the most popular songs with Angie yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. That was huge. Yeah. Well, and, what are you going to do? No. That's supposedly about an affair he had with Angie Bowie. Oh, I didn't know That's that. That's what we used to say anyway. Ah, uh, well. Up, we got a song about Mick Jagger talking about one of his affairs. Yeah. See you on the flip side. Do you remember Cool in the Gang, Jungle Boogie? Sure. 
That sure, was jungle big. boogie. Get it on. Yeah, that that kind of goes with that Stevie Wonder synthesizer sound. Yeah, doesn't it? well, that. F- I don't think they were playing synthesizers, but you can picture well, that and the funk going too. in that funk direction. Funk was really starting to take off in the early seventies. I mean, we haven't really talked about it, but I mean, I know that uh, Parliament Funkadelic was doing stuff back then. And and we're getting the first reggae songs. Get up, stand up by the Whalers. That that was one of the top one hundred songs. Barry White, never going to give you up. I shot the sheriff by the Whalers again. So it wasn't all white. But then you get the white guy singing the song, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. You know, didn't his plane go down in 1973? He died in 1973, yeah. I mean, no offense if you like Jim Croce, but that guy, I don't know. He wasn't, he's not the real deal. He just wasn't the real deal, <laughs> and I, I I never really cared for Jim Croce, and he was a he was a, he was the rave for a while. Yeah, I guess this is the most recognizable song by Dolly Parton, Jolene. Yeah, huge. Yeah, Jackson Five, Dancing Machine, Eagles, Tequila Sunrise, the way we were, Barbara Streisand from the movie, of course. Yeah, you're even talking about yeah, that. all sorts of Led Zeppelin that year. No Quarter was a really popular song. Yeah. George Harrison, Give Me Love. Don't remember it too well, but then, of course... Yeah, it was a hit. Paul McCartney and the Wings, Live and Let Die, because of the movie that came out that year. I think My Love also was a was a reasonably uh, big hit that year. Mm. It's no rock. Not no rock <laughs> from Paul McCartney. You know, where is it? And I think, what, Band on the Run? No. What was the album that came Band out? Band on the Run. Yeah, okay, yeah. Band on the Run. I mean, where's the rock? Where's I mean, where are the rock tunes from there? Yep. Not not on the list. All right, that's enough. I mean, there's so much. It really is. Uh, 73 really is something, you know, when you when you dig down into this and you look at all that there was. The first Kraftwerk album, I think, Ralph and Florian, I think that was their first album. That early stuff is pretty weird, though. It's not as, as refined as the later yeah. stuff. But you're right, they were doing something. Well, again, like with the Frippernino, like with some of the other things, it was foundational. Yeah, and we didn't know at it the time. It was really laying out things that were going to be coming for the rest of the 70s and later. Oh, one last mention, Renaissance, Ashes Are Burning. I loved Renaissance. The, the Annie Haslam, the singer, has such an extraordinary voice. I saw them live, I think, at Radio City once in New York, and they had a not a big career, but they had several popular albums. It was sort of prog rock. The bass player played this really heavy kind of Chris Squire bass. But beautiful vocals. Some of the songs were very long, like 18, 20 minutes. I think that was their first album, or at least was the first that got noticed. And, of course, Grateful Dead, Week of the Flood. Not the best album, but, you know, it's got Road Jimmy. It's got Tennessee Jet. It's got some good songs. It was there. It was there, for sure. Or even I remember that. And I was not a dead person at all, but I remember, you know, that, would, that was there. <laughs> okay, let's go on to our next track picks. So this is another one of my son's recommendations, and I think I mentioned this band previously in one of my picks. It is the new record by Fontaine's DC called Skinty Fia. I don't know if that's actually pronounced like that because it's Irish, I think. Like the first song is in our Gacroitha Godio. Please, if you're Irish, don't at me for that. But I think the name must be something to do with Irish. Wait. According to Wikipedia, its title refers to an old Irish saying drummer Tom Cole's great aunt used to say. The phrase skinty fia translates to the damnation of the deer. So this is this is the third album, right? A band has a great first album, a good second album. The third album is the one that really determines where they're going. And this is just an amazing album. It really is amazing. 
from beginning to end, it is, you know, we, we always, because of our age, we compare these things to what came in the past. And of course, they're influenced by these things in the past. And you can hear The Cure and Joy Division and Gang of Four. And there is a an energy, uh, there's often a, a beat, a, th a throbbing beat, and he has an energy, but there's none of this screaming vocals you get in punk. The vocals are actually quite restrained, and you can even understand the lyrics of these songs. So they're an Irish band. The name Fontaine's DC, weird story, the Fontaine comes from Johnny Fontaine in the Godfather movies, and when they discovered there was another band with the same name, they added DC for Dublin City. As far as branding goes, that's not really that great. But this came out about Two weeks ago, it was number one in Ireland and the UK. It is really extraordinary album. So Skinty Fia, and if you know how it's pronounced, drop me an email so I can get it right. I'm uh, going to pick one of the records that we briefly touched on from 1973, and that's The Who's Quadrophenia. I may have picked this in the past, but I'm going to pick it again because I haven't listened to it all the way through in a long time. Funny story about why I don't want to. I still have the reaction in the back of my mind that it's two albums, I'm going to have to get up twice and flip the record. <laughs> of course, I don't have to do that anymore. So I don't know why that phobia is keeping me from listening to the album all the way through. The other funny thing about that album is the first time I ever heard it was from a friend of mine in, in college in the dorm. She and her sister loved that record. And when she went off to college, she insisted that she have at least one of the discs. So when I would go to her room and hang out with her, we'd listen to side three and side four of Quadrophenia. I, it was years before I heard side one and two. So that's kind of funny. When that album came out in 1973, I, I know I saw ads for it in magazines and in the publications I read, Rolling Stone and National Lampoon and things like that. But I don't remember any of my friends ever talking about it. You didn't hear it on the radio. People, I think, were still uh, into who's next and that sort of thing. The funny thing about Quadrophenia is that, well, you got to go back before Who's Next, and Pete Townsend was trying to do this thing called Lifehouse, which was somehow supposed to be the music and the people and the listeners and the audience, and he could never convey the idea, he could never convey correctly what the idea he had was for Lifehouse, and it was, so it is now called the Abandoned Lifehouse Project. But he did take some of those ideas and apply them to Quadrophenia, and essentially it's that this character Jimmy is quadrophenic. He has the four personalities that are reflected by each of the members of the who which is kind of contrived but there are four themes in the in the this mini opera and uh, they are quite good it's a great record it's really well recorded townsend is getting a, a little bit more into synthesizers and being a little more nuanced with them uh it's really quite good and, and a lot of great songs on it, it let's there's no denying there's some great who songs are on this record blockbuster ones 515 bellboy uh love rain or me so there you go Quadrophenia by The Who is my next track. This was episode number 235 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining. So it's listener support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.